0: Hi folks, Patrick here. Welcome back for another episode of Bibliology. This is, of course, the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars and theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith today. Today on the show, you'll get to hear my recent conversation with Dr. Christoph Heilig. He is a New Testament specialist and he's now part of the Protestant Theological Faculty of the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. And we'll be speaking about his recent book, The Apostle and the Empire, Paul's Implicit and Explicit Criticism of Rome, published with Erdman's. Um, this is a very, very interesting book um, that forms the basis of our conversation. It it kind of explores the daunting topic of the Apostle Paul's attitude to the Roman Empire. Um, down through the years, there have been several competing proposals for what his opinion was. Some think he was indifferent. Some think he was something of a political revolutionary. Some think he had something of a positive perspective on Rome. And, and so Christoph really sorts through the data in a, in a compelling way. He brings the conversation forward significantly. He definitely brings out a new side, to Second Corinthians, that I'd never seen before. Um, and yeah, this interview is a, is a good taster uh, for that book. So you can feel free to check out the link in the description as well. And um, without further ado, let's get on to this uh, conversation and uh, hope you guys all enjoy it. Okay. Well, hello, Christoph. Welcome to the podcast. It's it's great to have you on.
1: Hi, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So we're, of course, going to be talking about your new book on the show today, The Apostle and Empire, um, published with Erdmans. And uh, this is of course, about Paul the Apostle and what he thought about Rome. And I'm excited to get into all the, the geeky um, details with you. But um, before we do that, I think it would be nice for the listeners to get to know you a little bit. So um, are you up for some quickfire questions? Sure, sure, sure. Please. Great. So um, after our um, discussion, which the audience are not going to hear because um, it wasn't recorded, I'm not sure if this is a correct question, but you've spent a great deal of time in Switzerland. What's the best and worst thing about living in this, in this country?
1: Yeah, I, I did spend a fair amount of time in Switzerland. I did my PhD at the University of Zurich. And uh, there are many things to like and to laugh about Switzerland, like, for example, the, the amount of direct democracy they have, there. They have referendums every year on important issues. I, I like that a lot. Um, and also public transport in Switzerland is just amazing. Uh, trains are all, almost always on time. You, you can take a train and you are in the mountains in half an hour. Um, and I'm at, at the moment I'm commuting from Germany to Basel as I just told you, and uh, there I always have the problem that if there's an issue with the drain, it's on the German side, and so after the border, border I'm fine and uh, I'll get to my to my destination. So that's great about Switzerland. Um, it's a downside that Switzerland is extremely expensive. Like yeah. really expensive. Uh, income is also very good, uh, but even people who are considered rich according to some standards uh, have to think a lot about having children, like or having more than one child at least. So, uh, and that that for me is quite a strange situation in a country that is apparently that rich.
0: Do you like find it annoying that you have to? They use their own currency and everything. Is that annoying as well, or?
1: No, actually, that, that that's quite quite fun, and uh, I mean, they have they are very proud of of their coins and their bills, um, and uh, banking w- works very easily between the two countries. There's there's no issue with that.
0: Yeah, and if you're listening to if you're from Switzerland and listening to this podcast, your your country is is amazing. So, so just <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so of course, an, another um, thing about you is that it, it seems from your CV that you have a a reasonable grasp of. Uh, quite a few different languages, whether these be um, modern languages or just research languages. And I'd be curious to know um, uh, what is the language that you would um, never dare to try and why?
1: Well, yeah, to to be honest, some of these languages are on my CV because I learned them at some point in time, but I, I wouldn't be comfortable speaking them. Um, But to answer your question, I think I'd be very cautious to try any non-European language because I just, I would know that I wouldn't have, it would be challenging to find a situation where I could practice that language. And even with English, I mean, I've written books in English, but over the last 10 years, I've only had combined amount of time of perhaps 10 hours or so of spoken english so um even that's challenging for me to create opportunities where i can like i can use english and it's very frustrating for me because i always have the sentences in my head but i usually can't get them out the way i want and at the moment i'm speaking a lot of modern greek with my two children um so that also interferes a lot with um yeah, with with my ability to speak English. and I think uh, modern modern Greek right now, it just, just is enough for me. I, I think I, I can't handle any other language right now.
0: And is modern Greek substantially different from New Testament Greek or
1: what's, what's oh, 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 we could have a, a whole podcast on that, I believe. Um <laughs> some Greek scholars would tell you it's basically the same. and and indeed, you can you can make an argument that the written New Testament Greek, um, is quite close to the spoken Greek of that time, and that this spoken Greek of that time is actually closer to modern Greek than to classical Greek. So in some sense, it's, it's better to know modern Greek than to know classical Greek when you're an exegete of the New Testament.
0: Wow, okay. Okay, so maybe I can just go the easy way around and actually just learn modern Greek rather than... Learning uh, that
1: that's history. what I do I, I've stopped I've stopped uh, learning uh, Kinney or Koine Greek, but, but but you have of course you have to adopt the modern Greek pronunciation if you choose that path which according to some Greek scholars is not the modern but the historical Greek pronunciation the way Greeks have always spoken. um there's some truth to that bit yeah, just some. Um, okay okay
0: here's here's the last fun question. If you could ask a human Bible character not named Jesus or Paul one question, uh, what would it be?
1: Well, because I'm currently working on the we passages in the book of Acts, I think I would like to ask Luke simply, "Were you there? I mean, it would help me a lot to know that for my research.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously that goes into all those like discussions of, well, is this a rhetorical device or is yes, it just exactly. simply um, an eyewitness? I think it's, it's easiest to say, well, he was just an eyewitness, but then, you know, people like to make it more complicated than that, I guess
1: yeah i mean it's the easiest explanation for for most of the evidence there still are some strange strange things that are but but, but perhaps that's another podcast i'm currently working on that so perhaps i can return in two years (laughs) or so
0: sure sure so we'll get on to to speaking about your book now of course this is the apostle and empire with Erdman's, and this book is of course um discussing um kind of a a very specific debate in new testament studies (laughs) In regards Paul and whether he was against the Roman Empire or whether he was kind of almost uh, just didn't care or or uh, what's going on here, and um, you know the the traditional anti-imperial interpretation of Paul, the most famous one would be the anti-right way of uh, putting that, and probably that's one that a lot of listeners of this podcast would probably be familiar with. But just for those who maybe aren't, could you just briefly summarize this this interpretation of Paul that? Would be put forward by anti wright and his disciples
1: yeah sure um so i should add i started with anti wright in and st andrews so to some extent i might be considered a disciple of anti-right of oh, okay. well, yeah leaving that aside um well i think the basic idea of wright is that he wanted to challenge this perception that paul had a kind of positive image of the roman empire simply because in romans 13 the only Passage where apparently he's really talking about the Roman Empire, he is quite positive about it. So, like he encourages people to submit to the state authorities. And the argument is that um, even though Paul was critical about the Roman Empire, he was just not able to express his criticism in public because that would have been too dangerous. So, for fear of persecution, Paul supposedly expressed his criticism in a hidden way, between the lines, so to speak, in a subtext. And we as exegetes are now in the difficult but exciting position that we need to decode this hidden criticism, this criticism between the lines.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. And something that, you know, I think occurs naturally to a lot of people when they hear that is like, the idea is putting coded messages of political significance in letters, is this a known practice in, in antiquity?
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, interception of letters is, is a known phenomenon from antiquity, uh, but it seems to have been rather rare. Um, we know from Cicero that he feared that some of his letters might be intercepted or uh, just um, yeah might be read by the wrong people, and so he he says at some points that he can't talk about specific issues. Um, or that he needs to even to resort to figurative language, uh, allegoria even, as he calls mm-hmm. it at one point. So, But then again, we have to admit that Cicero is, of course, in a much different situation. He is, is much m- m- he, he's a public figure, one of the most public figures um, of the end of the Roman Republic. So he's in a different situation than Paul, this wandering prophet. Uh, but But still, another thing that we learn from Cicero is that you always had to count on the possibility that even letters that were addressed to individuals might circulate among their friends and acquaintances so there is a certain there's reason to believe that paul thought that his letters might be read by other people um and that he needed to take into account like uh, the potential dangers That his letters might create for his community, I think that's something that can be said with uh, as being historically very plausible. Mm.
0: And uh, certainly, his suspicions have been (laughs) confirmed over the past two. Yeah,
1: some people have read them, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and um, you know, this anti-imperial approach—something that I found interesting in your book—and I'll just um, quote: you say it has not escaped critics of the approach that the search for resistance against an oppressive system in antiquity uh, in in the Pauline corpus in this instance, seems to depend on who is in charge in U.S. politics. To me, this is interesting because it's almost a a parallel to um, historical Jesus research Hmm. where certain um, uh, scholars, well, not probably most scholars who have made a reconstruction of Jesus, the Jesus they make, turns out looking like themselves basically Hmm. you know to what extent you know is it a challenge for you and not Hmm. to make Paul in your own likeness when when doing exegesis
1: yeah I mean to be sure I think we are all motivated by different biographical events and our biases Um, So for me personally, as a student, I know reading Andy Wright, it was quite refreshing to hear about this gospel that confronts Caesar because I I wasn't satisfied with the uh, kind of gospel that I learned about in my seminary setting that was very focused on individual salvation and getting souls saved. And so I, I I, I thought it was really refreshing and it helped me theologically. So, uh, but yeah, I, I have to remind myself of that so that as a historian, I, I'm able to um, to deal with my own biases. Uh, s- still, I think it, it's fine to, to to use modern questions to to address ancient texts um, as long as we are aware of the fact that we might influence these historical, reconstructions and and that we need correction from other people with other perspectives and that even at times when we reconstruct a certain uh, a certain part of paul uh, that might cohere well with how we would like him to have that that's just a part of paul and some other parts just remain strange and foreign to us um so yeah i think it's important to 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 remain self Critical, especially if if you talked about exegesis. But I think in the case that we are dealing with here, we we are actually leaving exegesis. Proper, we are not just talking about what Paul wanted to communicate, but what he thought, why he was communicating, like his hidden agendas. So we we are we are not even ex executing the text, interpreting the text. We are moving behind the text. We are using the text to. To dive into Paul's thought world and of course if, if we do such more speculative tasks we, we need to be aware of of the fact that um we are only only getting a glimpse at Paul and that we need to be very careful not to to take that as a complete description of the Apostle
0: mm. and of course you, you know a discussion we probably don't have time to get into but would of course be the question of well when we're reading the questions to what extent are we reading Paul's personality and to what extent are yeah. we reading his um rhetoric as they say yes. so um we probably don't have time to get into that um yeah. Too, yeah too much um but you know needless to say you've come to the view that that paul's criticism in in his letters you, you believe that there was criticism in paul's letters yeah. that's what i'm getting from this book but you think it's open rather than nt wright who thinks it's hidden and uh, we'll of course discuss um that in more in more depth in a bit, but could you briefly elaborate on you know some of the problems facing the the hidden criticism hypothesis first? Mm.
1: So I think most influentially, uh, John Barclay criticized uh, this idea of Andy Wright uh, and Neil Elliot and others that you can somehow detect echoes of the empire using Richard Hayes criteria for detecting intertextual echoes of the of the Old Testament and New Testament. Um, and his article, Why the, Why the Roman Empire Was Insignificant to Paul, uh, I think published in 2011, uh, going back to, to a discussion he had with Wright in 2007 at an SPL meeting, really is a, is a watershed moment in the, in the debate because he identifies, a, 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 identifies a, a series of necessary conditions that all have to be true um, for Paul's uh, for, for Wright's thesis to, to even begin to make sense. And more recently, in f- 2021, um, Laura Robinson wrote an article in New Testament Studies building on the critique of Barclay. And so I, I compiled a list of necessary conditions that I also discuss in my book that I um, that I extract from these critical works. And perhaps you can just go through them one by one so that you, you get an idea what kind of yeah. criticism is um, directed against Wright's approach. So the, the first basic condition that needs to be met is are the polar letters affected by the rules of public discourse at all so so barclay for example he argues that no basically it's like reading a diary right i mean these letters were private so paul didn't have to care about what to say and i think that's wrong and we already touched about that with respect to cicero and uh, the awareness that people other people might read the letter and, and the effect of history, like, I mean, Paul's letters indeed having circulated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second necessary condition for Paul, uh, for Wright's thesis to be true is, do these rules of the public discourse forbid open criticism of aspects of the Roman Empire? And yeah, uh, Barclay makes the case, no, actually, you, you, could, you could be quite critical about the Roman Empire in public. And Laura Robinson similarly says that there's no law uh, forbidding you uh, to say things, and yeah, so uh, I think that's, that's perhaps where the, the critics are most misleading. And, mm-hmm. I, I, and I learned a lot for, for this new book um, from the historian James Cork-Rapster from Durham, who has done work on the correspondence between the Governor Pliny at the beginning of the second century under the Emperor Trajan. He kills Christians, and so far people have thought that this has to do with there being a law against Christianity. And Cork Webster shows that that's wrong. It's just a, what we are dealing with is just a governor who has to make like hundreds of decisions in just a couple of days when he visits a town and he just he's presented with this group of strange people and their neighbors say they are somehow troublesome and he doesn't really find any fault with them. But then he just, in first shoot policy, just kills them. And he doesn't kill them because of religious policies. He kills them because he thinks, well, these marginal people, they might be troublesome. And if I kill them, I might just get rid of the problem. And then as it turns out, Christianity all has already spread and might affect the elite so he he gets anxious and writes to Trajan but it's never about it's never about there being a law against christianity christianity wasn't illegal throughout the first uh, 200 years also not after the this uh, rescript from trajan but it also was never harmless so th- and th- that's a, th- the most important takeaway for me that even at the time of paul um people if they were brought before the government, could just have been executed, not necessarily because of their religion, but because they just might have been very, seems asocial uh, to mm-hmm. the contemporaries or their faith might have had uh, economic consequences, like something like that. So, uh, but, but we should move on. The, the, the third question we need to ask, right, is um, did Paul have an exposure to these elements and did he perceive them as specifically Roman? Like, did he know the imperial cults and stuff like that? I think that's also a condition that is met, but some people are sceptical. We also need to clarify whether Paul might have had a critical attitude towards these things that others might say that oh, Paul was astonished by Roman power and he just liked all of that. I mean, it's it's, it's an argument some people have made. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we, we have to discuss whether in light of Paul's personality, it's reasonable to assume that he expressed his critical stance only in the subtext of his letters. And, and there De Barclay makes an interesting argument. He says, well, Paul is so courageous. He talks about idol worship in a very critical way, and idol worship was very important for ancient society. So if if he doesn't tone down his message here, why should he with respect to Caesar? And I think it's a, it's a good argument to some extent. Um, but on the other hand, I, I don't see why Paul should get into more trouble than is absolutely necessary. So that's also something that I've come to realize in my new book and that differs from my early work that I say, well, okay, it's, it's true, Paul might be some quite direct in some some instances, but that doesn't mean that he just risks the security of his community left or right. Um, and then finally, something that I realized in dialogue with Laura Robinson is that we, we need to insert uh, yet another condition, namely, even if all these conditions are met, we still have to explain why Paul felt a need to... Talk at all about the emperor in one of his letters. I mean, perhaps he had horrible thoughts about the emperor, but why would he? Why would he f- f- feel convinced to, to 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 insert that in the letter, even ex- either explicitly or implicitly? Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's also something a, a very valid criticism, and something that we, a case that we have to make for for each individual um, for each individual letter. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And the, so so
1: a... these are the most most common objections, I think.
0: Yeah. Sure. And, that, and that's that's helpful just to lay those um, conditions out now. Um, John Barclay himself, um, does he does he take the view that Paul just um, didn't care about Rome? Would that be his view or um, has he changed his mind at all? Or
1: Well, I, I hope that I convinced him, at least to some <laughs> extent, with respect to Second Corinthians 2.14 um, in my book. He wrote the, uh, the preface to my book, and it's a very kind, generous preface. Um, I, I still think that he, what, what he would emphasize is that Paul intentionally ignores the Roman Empire. So it's not so much about him being unable to detect uh, how the Roman Empire contradicts claims about Christ. Um, it's more that Paul doesn't, re- doesn't want to recognize it as an entity in itself, and thus lumps it together um with uh, lumps it together with other pagan uh, practices, and yeah. so it's very interesting. For example, he writes um, th- th- that he thinks in Second Corinthians two fourteen, a passage that I talk a lot about in my book. It's Paul has in he doesn't say he has in mind, but Paul would have been opposed to all kinds of triumphal processions and victory celebrations, uh, regardless of the of the um- empire that stands behind them. And and I, I, I happen to disagree with that. I think Paul did have a specifically Roman aspect in mind, specifically when writing passages like to Corinthians two fourteen.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll um get on to that uh, now just to talk that because that's of course one passage that you spend a lot of time on in your positive case for Paul being critical of the empire. Now um I might just read it, read from verse eleven onwards just to give the context. Yeah, please. Unfortunately, the only Bible in front of me is actually the Message translation. So I will just uh, quickly.
1: Oh, I, I don't know how they translate 2:14. Uh, I'm looking forward to him there.
0: Right. This this is. Um. Some people are going to be throwing their laptop right now that I have a Message <laughs> translation here. But um, one second here. So we see,
1: perhaps it gets it right. right?
0: <laughs> second Corinthians two verse. Oh, flip it doesn't have um. Doesn't
1: it doesn't have... have verse.
0: Yeah. So one second here. Uh... I'll start from here. So, and I don't know what verse this is, so apologies in advance, but uh, it's the start of a new section. So when I arrived in Troas to proclaim the message of the Messiah, I found the place wide open. God had opened the door. All I had to do was walk through it. But when I didn't find Titus waiting for me with news of your condition, I couldn't relax. Worried about you, I left and came on to Macedonia province looking for Titus and a reassuring word on you. And I got it. Thank God in the Messiah in Christ. God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade through us. He brings knowledge of Christ everywhere we go. People breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Now, of course, the Ah. verse 14 is in this translation. In the Messiah in Christ, God leads us from place to place in one perpetual victory parade. Wow,
1: that's so interesting. I mean, several yeah. things. First of all, he said he connects the Thanksgiving to getting the news about the Corinthians from Titus, which I don't think the Greek text shows. Like in, in the Greek text we, text we have a new sentence beginning in two fourteen. It's like thanks be to God, and then God is characterized in a participle construction, namely as the one who always perhaps leads us around at this victory parade or whatever. So, but that's not that clear. The translation thinks that this victory parade somehow is, is a metaphor for getting good news from Titus. And, and I don't think that's the case. Um, I think it's wrong in that regard. But it's interesting that it talks about a victory parade. I mean, that has baffled exegetes for a long time. Why is Paul giving a thanksgiving and what, what for what, right? I mean, what is it that God is doing and yes, yeah, some some have understood this Greek verb "thriamvevo" uh, as meaning that Paul is led in a kind of victory parade, and like in a positive role. Right? He's, he's a victorious soldier, a victorious general, like some translations say. And yeah. um, others think it's just it's more about the victory itself. Like the King James version, I believe, says, uh, "Thanks be to God who always um, leads us in triumph or gives us triumph, gives us triumph." Mm-hmm. Right. And I think most people, when they hear that, they, they think about triumph in the sense of receiving victory, being victorious. Um, and, and yet other suggestions say that it has nothing to do with that at all. It's about pay, uh, a eschatological procession by Israel's God, or that it's about just being made known. It doesn't have anything to do with the military realm. So, But I, I actually wrote a whole book um, in, basically in preparation for this book, right, <laughs> um, on, on just 2 Corinthians 2.14 and I analyzed uh, the, the verb and uh, related words in ancient texts and it's pretty clear what it means. Um, it, it depicts God as a trumpeter in a Roman triumphal procession and Paul and his co-workers as captives who are presented to the watching crowd in Rome. And it's important to know that it's Paul is in the role role of a captive of a prisoner of war. Um, the context that is implied by the verb, always is, is Rome, the Roman capital, and the one for whom it's used as a subject in all the texts of that time is the Roman emperor. So it, it, it this passage clearly evokes Rome. It clearly clearly evokes the Roman emperor, and I even think it has a specific background because something gets never noticed almost never noticed in his secondary literature, literature is that during Paul's lifetime, we only have a single emperor celebrating a Roman triumphal procession. And that's glorious just a couple of years earlier in 44 CE, after his military advancement uh, in uh, Britannia. Um And, you know, a triumph like that, it was a glorious event for the triumphator. but it was also an opportunity to, to make a fool of yourself. Like, for example, if like in Claudius case you you went to britannia only for two weeks and then you returned to celebrate a victory procession people would say well, i mean your achievement doesn't match your celebration right uh, and then also apparently claudius failed to produce a create an impressive captives that he could show around that's at least implied by the fact that in 51 one um british uh, british uh, Prince is captured, Caratacus, and he's presented to the crowd like in 51, like several years later in Rome. And uh, one Roman historian talks about this as somehow constituting the completion of glorious triumph. So there was a lot of discussion going on about this specific Roman triumph procession, and I, I think that's what Paul has in mind, or at least alludes to, because in Corinth at that time, we have evidence for a cult that was specifically devoted to the celebration of Claudius' victory in Britannia, wow. uh, and and of course Paul met uh, Acta and Priscilla in Rome, uh, in sorry in, in Corinth while he was probably thinking about going to Rome, and they were just coming from there, like because Claudius, the very same emperor, had sent him away, had sent him to choose away from Rome. So he met potential eyewitnesses in Corinth and, and could talk with them about this procession and about this emperor. And so I think it's a that's a very obvious a uh, very obvious background, and if if we read Paul's comment or his allusion to this triumph for possession and context, it's just interesting to see um, that, that he enters into dialogue here with other ancient voices like Seneca, who writes his um, apokolokitosis, a uh, pumpkinification of Claudius, like it's not it's divination, divinization, right, the apotheosis apotheosis but is, uh, he's becoming a pumpkin um, and in, in this biting satire too uh, that's made fun of claudius as an apparent uh, military genius so i don't i don't think paul is criticizing claudius directly i think he's criticizing the corinthians because they don't like his travel movements the ones you've just read i think that's not, just not the way we want a victorious evangelist to appear. And so he says, yeah, I know how I look like. I look like a, a captive who's shamefully paraded in Rome, but who's in charge? The triumph yeah. God. So if you have a problem with me, you have a problem with God. So I think he's criticizing not Caesar, but the Corinthians, but still there are these overtones and I'm I'm quite sure the Corinthians would have picked up on them. And it, Paul, it's just something very special to to use this triumphal imagery and then to push out the emperor out of his triumphant chariot and replace him by uh, this troubling figure, this is, uh, God of Israel, who's made so much trouble in the past already. So yeah, it's fascinating. I think Paul is one of the few voices who comments on this uh, event of contemporary politics here, and that's in quite a sophisticated manner.
0: Mm. And so you know, it's not um, it's not really open criticism. Criticism in, he's, in that he's not saying, and you know, after he was. Claudius was thrown out of the chariot. We set fire to him and uh, no, you know no. destroyed him. He's more just, you know, uh, it's it's more just uh, almost cheeky what he's doing. Yeah, it
1: is, it is. And so yeah. well, we have to remind ourselves he's probably writing in fifty five CE. That means Claudius has just died, um, probably being poisoned by Nero. So like the year before, a couple of months before. So he he might have he, perhaps Paul is taking advantage of the fact that. At this point, with Nero obviously not lying Claudius that much, you can make fun of the former emperor, perhaps not of Nero but of Claudius. You can do that without it being as dangerous as it would otherwise be. So yeah, um, it, it's not a critique of Claudius. I mean, Claudius is dead. It's just yeah, making fun of him to some extent, right?
0: Yeah, and another thing is like now that now that if if I were to um, accept your your argument, and I do think it's a good one, that would mean that Paul knew that Britain existed, which um, brings up a yeah. whole lot of I mean, other questions.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, it's a difficult question to what extent geography was known, but the ocean as the boundary of the Roman Empire was known well and was depicted in many statues and like was a Roman divinity, Oceanus, um, and so when... Claudius uh, kept, uh, was victorious in Britannia. That was a, a part of the ideology um, that he made the ocean, it was the boundary of the Empire, made it uh, the center of the empire, which is of course not really true, but that's how the exaggeration works and that's how the satire works too. Um, and we have like from from Asia Minor, uh we, we have good evidence from the east from eastern provinces that th- this was a very important theme for Claudius and we have statues depicting uh Claudius um, being victorious about Britannia and we do have that cult that takes place in Corinth, um which is very significant, I think. So that on a yearly basis, we can assume from parallels we would have sacrifices on behalf of Claudius and um of the personified victory. Over Britannia. So that was a public event that people knew about, and they knew that it was important for this global imperialism of Rome, so to speak. Um, And of course, then we have Paul talking here in the second part of the verse about uh, the message of Christ uh, being spread in all places right? Yeah, and he, yeah. it's not just a triumphal procession, but it's a triumphal procession that occurs always, or perhaps we have many triumphal processions, That that's not that clear. Um, so in, in any case, Paul is making making use of the spatial dimension that is also implied in uh, in central to the ideology and the propaganda uh, s- surrounding this specific event of Claudius.
0: Yeah, so much to consider. And um you know if, if we assume that the, this hypothesis of open content is correct you know Paul isn't you know openly being critical but you know he dumps Claudius out of his chariot he says the rulers yeah. of this age are perishing yeah. um, he criticizes the Pax Romana in first Thessalonians five however it may be um, you know if this is um, understood correctly so is this something uncommon or dangerous Paul's letters when he makes these statements or would this be you know something that's normal in in Paul's day and culture?
1: Well so so first of all like what we have in 2 Corinthians 14 is an unheard of use of a military metaphor. Um, We we have another case Ovid who who talks about um, the god of love as the triumphator but there too it has critical potential um, with respect to Augustus, as some scholars have noted, so it's not totally unparalleled, but it's it's something that that, that is notable, and I, I think this use of um, the categories of the sociologist um, James Scott of hidden and public transcript that are circulating a lot in literature, it's actually a good good distinction. He uh, Scott differentiates between the transcript that applies to public discourse and another kind of protocol that is at uh, force v- within oppressed communities when there's no uh, danger of sanctions. And so he, he points out that as historians, we usually only have access to the public transcript. Um, uh, but what but, 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 but biblical scholars haven't noticed enough, I think, is how dynamic these two protocols, these two transcripts interact. Like, for example, I, we already talked about the diachronic dimension, like there being perhaps the opportunity to stretch the boundaries of the public transcript now that Claudius is dead. Um, And there might also be geographical differences. Like some things you can say with respect to the church in Galatia, churches in Galatia, you perhaps wouldn't say that in such an open way with respect to Rome. Just like I have to be careful in this conversation not to presuppose the public transcript of Germany or Switzerland because you you have other kinds of sensitivities. Also, I think we misjudge the the public transcripts sometimes, right? So there are all kinds of ways in which the hidden transcript and the public transcript can come into a quite dynamic relationship. Um, And sometimes we even have just like in the heat of passion, we say things that aren't really wise, right? And we we just can't hold it back. And perhaps that's what's, what's going on in and 1 Corinthians 2, like it was unnecessary of Paul to to, to add the modification that that the rules of this age are perishing. It's just like like he, he just added it because he just couldn't keep his mouth shut. And so some of these things might turn out to be quite innocent and not to be dangerous. Other comments? I mean at least potentially dangerous like i i don't think romans would roman officials would have liked to 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 read first corinthians 2 or philippians 2 and actually i don't think paul would have survived standing before several governors if he had used such language in front of them i mean on a good day he would have brought to jerome uh the next day on a bad day he would just have been executed even as a roman citizen um, so, yeah, there, there are all these dynamics and some of these things might have been dangerous and some of these things might have been more dangerous than Paul thought. And some things perhaps might not have been as dangerous as Paul might have feared just because they might have been too obscure and part of some strange Jewish uh, fraction to, to, to romanize.
0: Yeah. And one of the um, one of the phrases that Paul, well, one of the statements that Paul makes that is probably one of the least dangerous would be Romans 13 <laughs> and um, you know you write that you think that Paul expressed himself in a rather confusing manner um, when he wrote this um, this passage and for anyone who doesn't know um, you probably have heard the passage before this is where Paul says you know submit to governing authorities dot 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 and um, because they're ordained by God and such so um, in general, like, how does this passage um, factor into the discussion? Does this, you know, sit well with the open discontent hypothesis, um, or was, was Paul just being ad hoc, or, or what's going on here? Do you think?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I have to find this passage quite confusing, right? Because it doesn't fit my hypothesis perfectly. I'll admit that. So, especially if you read it the way that most people are used to uh, to read it, um, so. Most people assume that it, it's a general comment about the, the Roman state or about the state in general, the relationship between the church and state, and they, they compare it to a similar passage in First Peter. Um, but I don't think it is, because if it were, it were, would be such an un-nuanced statement about the Roman Empire, and I don't think Paul was that naive. Like, I mean, saying the Roman Empire... He doesn't say it, but if that's what you think, he's referring to the Roman Empire or the governors. Uh, don't carry this word in vain, as it says in f- verse 4, without being aware of the fact that your readers could just object and say, well, so what about Jesus? Uh, does the Roman Empire not carry the, the cross in vain? Mm-hmm. I, I, I just can't believe that Paul is that naive, because as we have just seen in Second 2 Corinthians 2.14, he, he even expects a certain a certain objection to to his argument, and he introduces this long section running from uh, 2.14 to 7.4, just because he knows that people will take issue with the travel movements that he's narrating. And in Romans, he's in a constant fictional dialogue uh, with his readers. So I, I think that's just too much to ask that, to, to think that he, that he was consciously commenting on the relationship between uh, Christianity and the state and not thinking about Jesus, who had just been executed two two decades before. And given that he's the the one person, the whole first century, who just is totally... Totally obsessed with talking about this execution. That's what it is, right? I mean, it has theological significance, but it, it's an execution, and he talks about it like in, in ways Romans would never talk about. Like in, in in Galatians, where he says that he is crucified, and the cosmos, like the Roman Empire, is crucified, and the Galatians are crucifying. Like I mean, Roman soldiers, right? It's such a such a strange way. He he knows. A lot about Roman execution, obviously. It's it's part of his daily message, and we we are supposed to believe that he, he doesn't consider this objection. Here, I, I find it unbelievable, and it also contradicts, of course. Like, I mean, a ton of data that we know about Jewish um, perception of the Roman Empire as a oppressive regime in, in general. So I, I reject that opportunity, that position, and then I have some sympathy for people who think, well, then it's just a satire, it's just irony. Like Paul is basically saying the, the complete opposite. And as I right to show in my book, well, you, it, actually you have parallels like in antiquity where uh, like it's equally difficult to differentiate between the Roman propaganda and uh, the, the satire. I mean, they, they just almost sound the same. So it, it's possible. But then I'm not convinced in the end because I'm just not sure what it would imply for the pragmatics of the passage. Is Paul saying, well... Pay, pay your taxes, but, I mean, these people are, of course, not really ordained by God. Or is he saying, don't pay your taxes because, I mean, these are laughable people. So I don't think that Paul wants to uh, introduce such confusion into the situation. So ultimately, what I think what we need to do is um, we need to take a look at this passage and we need to realize that also on on the surface, it just doesn't look like a passage that's written about the basic problem of the state uh, in the church, it's very confusing syn- syntactically, it's very elaborate. So, but we don't know the, the precise topic it's talking about. We know it has something to do with taxes, verse six, but, but even there, we don't really know what it's about. So, I assume that Paul is talking about a very specific issue, and he, it's very important to him that people pay these taxes and that the community is not, um, survives in Rome. I mean, like history agrees with him, right? There was a danger, like under an Nero just a couple of years later, um, they suffered persecution. So I think that's exactly what Paul wants to avoid. And he uses this theological reasoning, but the situation must be so specific that he, isn't, he doesn't have to fear the objection, like, I mean, what about Jesus? And um, in my book, I draw a parallel to how we today sometimes quote Romans 13. And I point out that Late Show host Stephen Colbert, in in one of his monologues, um, is I think is it's really funny that as a judge who quotes Romans thirteen um, when being confronted with a riot and insurrectionist from January six. And Colbert obviously thinks it's it's great to, to confront these people who are saying, well, I'm doing this, I'm just a citizen of Christ and Christ's kingdom. He so said, well, submit to the state. He thinks it's funny. But then a couple of years before that, um, he also thought it was necessary for him to make jokes about Jeff Sessions, um, who used the very same passage to argue for law and order. Right. So if, if, confronted, if confronted with this situation, Colbert might have said, well, yeah, sure, I mean, but just because I invoke it here doesn't mean that I really think that everything the state does all the time is just uh, unobjectionable and things like that. And perhaps Paul would have responded in the same way. Like your Tyson, New Testament scholars, imagines a dialogue between Luke uh, and Paul at the very end of his life. And Luke basically says, well, Paul, that, that was quite naive of you, right? Quite undifferentiated. And, and Paul says, yeah, I could have written that better. And, and that's what I mean with is confusing in that. I actually don't think that Paul was naive. He knew about the Roman Empire and about the ability to persecute and to to kill Christians and to kill minorities in general. But uh, I just think that he didn't think about that in this situation because the issue was so specific for him. But if we had confronted him at the end of his life and uh, told him, well, some people are reading this now or will be reading this in a couple of decades and centuries as... Uh, like, uh, I mean, uh, confirmation of how good the Roman Empire is. Paul would have said, "Well, I, that didn't didn't cross my mind that anybody could believe something like that." But okay, I see how you could read it like that in a context where you are not confronted with the suppressive regime all the time. Uh, perhaps I should have made that clear. So that that's what I mean by confusing.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's nice to hear you uh, wrestle with that passage a bit because it is just so confusing. And I, I'll never forget, you know, um, hearing a talk um one time. And in the talk, someone was like preaching on Romans 13. And they said, now, obviously, the passage says that we can, um, if the government is saying things that are contrary to God's law, we can we can rebel against them. Mm. And when I asked, where are you getting that from in the Mm -hmm. passage that he was like, well, he he didn't really have an answer because, you know, it it is such a you want the passage to say that, but it doesn't, you know. So um, it is just very um, enigmatic and weird like that.
1: One problem is that many Bibles say have a, a heading like the state and the church or something like that, right? And but, but if you actually read it, I mean, it's it, it's strange that, that Paul never really names the authorities that are in view, or it, it's very difficult for us to see what what he has in mind. It's probably not Caesar. Um, and so I think it helps to remind ourselves that Second 2 Corinthians 2.14 is more explicit in evoking the Roman emperor. I think First Corinthians two is more explicit in evoking the Roman emperor. So, and if we if we accept this uh, assumption, then it we, we might be able to read this text, uh, even though it's it's a longer text, it's a more detailed text, against this background and not the other way around.
0: Yeah, well, the one question I think that's interesting to consider is that if the the so-called Jutero Pauline material is authentic, and here, of course, we're talking about the letters in our New Testament that people say well maybe Paul wrote it maybe it was a disciple maybe it was whatever hmm. um they would say you know Colossians uh second Thessalonians um Ephesians the likes of these you know the
1: pastoral, if these, yeah.
0: oh. and the pastorals yeah if these are authentic do they contain any material that would affect this discussion of how Paul thinks of Empire and and such
1: yeah I mean I'm I'm sympathetic to the idea that some of these letters are authentic or more authentic uh, than uh, is typically believed, at least in German-speaking scholarship. But, I mean, I think uh, we can at least see a lot of continuity. Like, for example, the pastorals, we have this uh, the, the general perceptions that pastors are just marked by this bourgeois ethics, like 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2. Uh, where Christians are encouraged to to pray for the emperor and to have a quiet and peaceful life, right? I mean, that sounds so boring to to, to today's readers. But then again, I think we have to be very careful not to be arrogant. and We we must not forget the context in which Paul or the student of Paul is living and writing. And I think that, especially especially against the backdrop of what we've discussed with respect to uh, the legal situation of Christians, um we can now see that there is no contradiction between passages like that and a Pauline unease or discomfort with the Roman Empire um rather I think these passages um actually are a reflection of just the reality of this constant danger and if, if we read these ethical instructions against the backdrop, I think they make very good sense um, as instructions that are meant to secure just the, the continuity of the christian communities um so i so i see some continuity here where other people would see kind of development um and then like for ephesians there's an excellent new book by justin vinzenberg that was just published this this year 2022 it's called ephesians and empire and I mean, he he makes a very sophisticated argument, also not following the the classical writing hypothesis, but thinking about what exactly it means, for critique to be included in the pragmatics of, of speech acts, and very interesting um, argument. He of course he thinks that a later date, if it's not Pauline, right, uh, increases perhaps the chances of it being empire critical, because then the legal situation might have changed and that I would object and think but still he he has some very good arguments Uh, for example regarding uh, Ephesians 6.12 but still I mean as I detail in my book we must remember that uh, Ephesians 6:11 is, is a passage that features in the insurrection on January 6th. So you you can use Paul in different ways and you can understand resistance in different ways and you can use him as a source for different kinds of political ethics and um mm. yeah different kinds of resistance to different kinds of of, of governments. Yeah.
0: What is that Ephesians Jim? Um, just to...
1: um it, it's about the the armor that you're supposed to put on and Underwater, you you are uh, oh, God, and, and, yes. and you're, you're fighting right
0: right right. okay now um of course we're getting towards the end of our time here um and it's been uh, really interesting just to, to to nerd out on these um issues and these uh, questions of um, how to interpret Paul so you of course kind of wrote a, a more popular level article on this for um eard words. I believe that's kind of a, a website that erdmans use hmm. for um for their um authors just to uh, put their ideas out there in article form. And um you seem to um you're you're kind of maybe reflecting a little more on the implications of what you've what you've written. And if anyone wants to read that, they can they can find it in the description. But one interesting quote I think I found from this, and you're talking, of course, about um Christian nationalism. That's kind of a something that's going on, especially in a, an American context right now. And uh, you write, um, white Christian nationalists are reviving a Christian politics that forces certain Christian ideas and policies on others in a triumphal procession through democratic institutions. This idea is fundamentally at odds with the the humble picture that Paul paints. And I think it would be nice, you know, just at the end, maybe if you could elaborate mm-hmm. a little bit on what this... Um, uh, on the use of this word "humble," you know, in what mm. world, in what way is Paul's political vision humble, and like, how can that mm. inform us?
1: Yeah, I mean, so so the, the category for that I was writing that article is um, book meets world. I think so. It's about specifically moving beyond the book and thinking about implications of the book. So I, I move there beyond my my task as a historian. I would say, um, but I do think there are implications of this kind of research. Um, And personally, I was just, I was struck when I was several years ago in Rome and I was visiting the baptistry, the the place where um, the Emperor Constantine was supposedly, according to legend, baptized shortly before his death. And you are in this huge building and you look at the basin there, the baptism supposedly took place. And then you look at the wall, you see that painting of Constantine entering on a horse into the city in his hands head of his enemy, Maxentius. And that's a Roman triumphal procession. And I was just struck by this contrast between, on the one hand, Paul's text and he presenting himself as a captive in that, that procession. And then here, the first Christian emperor receiving triumph in the sense of victory from God. That's how Constantine understood his experience. And then as a consequence of that, also receiving his triumph, his triumphal procession in Rome from God and entering the, the, the town, the, the city as a triumphant. And it's just such a, such, a, such a strange contrast to me. And if you then look at the history of interpretation, you will see that idea of triumphalism, of God giving victory in mean, all kinds of circumstances, including political debates. Um, is something that is prevalent throughout the centuries, and I think that is that's at odds with the kind of picture that uh, Paul paints. Now, granted, there are, is of course a difference in context. Right? Paul does not consider the even the possibility of him being him living in a democracy and him being able to introduce Christian ideas, Christian ethics into the public discourse. Um, but I, but I think for Paul. There's reason to believe, reason for the expectation that a church will remain in an outsider role until Christ's return. And there's also a theological reasoning behind his assumption that our behavior, and that includes our political behavior, should not simply be determined by what is best for us. Like, For example, I think that um, he's thinking a lot about how the church is perceived by wider society. Mm-hmm. For, for example, just perhaps one example can, can illustrate this. Second Corinthians 3, then verse 10, uh, we have this famous uh, quote, if any would not work, neither should he eat. So that's the King, King James Version, hiding the fact, by the way, that it's uh, in, in Greek it's the one who doesn't want to work. But leaving that aside, it's it's a, a quote that in, has influenced work ethics throughout the centuries, um, and it is sometimes even quoted explicitly especially in the U.S. context, uh, whenever there's an argument about cutting social security benefits or as an argument against UBI, universal basic income. And it's supposed presupposed that the whole section is against work shyness and laziness. And if you actually read it in context and look at the Greek words that are used, it becomes clear that it's not about lazing around. But rather what is happening is that the people are so enthusiastic about this gospel message that they just evangelize all day and stop working because they don't have time for that. So to, to, to translate the, the idiom in the Greek, you could say they, they are busy without doing business. And Paul clearly does not like that. And so basically what he does is he does not accept their spiritual reasoning for their behavior. He doesn't ac- ac- accept that they are not working because of the cause of Christ. Um, because he thinks that makes the community vulnerable. Because now the others have to take care of them. And because it just paints a horrible picture to outsiders who look at this community to see that some people just don't work and are dependent on the others. And so I think there's a certain irony in all of this. It, it, it We have to raise the question um, whether those who now refer to Paul, to the Bible, who who argue in a very spiritual way in order to deny other people benefits, if it's not them uh, who are guilty of exactly what Paul has in mind. Mm-hmm. So I grant... This idea of security and the Christian church having to have a certain image just in order to survive is no longer that relevant. But I think Paul in other places also just emphasizes the role of personal sacrifices in order to win people over for Christ's cause. And so in any case, I'm, I'm not convinced that Paul would agree with the idea that Christian politics is primarily about establishing Christian ideas. In the public Mm -hmm. sphere. Um, But I think rather he would emphasize that it's about the mode uh, in which we conduct ourselves in political debates.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a lot of uh, food for thought, Um, and I'll probably have to listen back to that a few times. But thanks a lot for that, you know, practical application of meditation of, of, let's call a, it the meditation a meditation okay sure
1: and please yeah. uh, to to your listeners still buy the book if you are not a believer in ubi
0: <laughs> thanks a million um christopher coming on it's been um great to talk to you and to hear your um your thoughts on this um issue
1: well thank you so much for your questions it was, it was great talking to you about all this